All right, so uh, what I want to do is jump into uh, my teaching from where we left off last week and continue to develop this to give us a context, of course, for how we live our lives today in the midst of such great confusion and terror that's uh, encroaching on our lives, in our world, the world that we live in. So I've entitled this message, Why the Nations Hate Israel. Why the Nations Hate Israel. So what's behind the hatred of Israel? Have you ever thought about that? Why are so many nations desiring to destroy her? Think about it. Historically, numerous kings and empires have tried to remove her from her land and even from existence. This latest attack against Israel is unveiling this monstrous and vile hatred once again. What is irrational about this is that so many are blaming her for the attack, the rapes, the torture, the heinous murders of innocent families in their homes. Even children, toddlers, infants were terrorized, burned alive, and decapitated. Yet, and shockingly, many nations and organizations are blaming Israel. So today, we will continue to take a look into the evil behind this hatred of Israel and what you and I can do about it. We're going to jump all the way down to the book of Revelation. We started in Zechariah, Zechariah chapters 12 through 14, but I wanted to jump to the book of Revelation. Uh, The revelator here uses a lot of material from the book of Zechariah, from the prophet Zechariah. And so I thought it would be great to kind of connect those dots and take a look at what happens in the end. Let's, let's press into the future, if you will, and find some hope to give us grit to the things that we are enduring today. I said it last week, I'm going to say it again. An attack against Israel is an attack against you and me. It's, a, it's an attack against Jews everywhere, not just in the land but Jews everywhere, and from those who identify with Israel, i.e. Christians who understand that they're grafted in and are a part of Israel. And make no mistake about it, the enemy who has its eyes on Israel also looks at Christians as being part of their targets. Even on a national level, Israel's called the little Satan by our enemies, and America, the U.S., is called the great Satan. So this is a religious war, and it has had its ebb and flow forever, and it is building like we've never seen before in modern history. So in Revelation chapter 20, we find some answers as to what lies behind this hatred of Israel, this baseless hatred of Israel. Now keep in mind that the literature we're looking at um, is apocalyptic. The genre, uh, the style of literature is called apocalyptic. And because it's apocalyptic, that clues us in. Apocalyptic literature is filled with symbols and visions and figures of speech. It's that set of literature that you you are very careful in terms of trying to take it literally. It's not meant to be taken literally. It's about visions and signs and symbols to speak and communicate what actually is taking place. But it's, it's kind of done in, in a very beautiful way, artistically, through the genre of apocalyptic literature. So let's keep that in mind as we jump into this. In Revelation chapter 20, we have a set of visions 
that relate to the return of Jesus. Okay, so everyone dreams, right? A dream is like a vision. It's when you're asleep. When, when you're not sleeping, we call that a vision. When you're sleeping, we call it a dream. But as you're fully aware, dreams are filled with all kinds of symbols too, right? Your dreams are like, just kind of like, just out there, just, you know, not really connected too much to literal things in reality, but yet communicate what's going on in our lives. In fact, that's one of the way we process things in our lives is through our dream, dream state. It's where we begin to wrestle with things that maybe we don't wrestle with consciously. And so dreams and visions are filled with symbols to teach us uh, the meaning of life and what we're encountering in life. So we're going to look at a few of these visions in chapter 20. The segment that we're going to look at reveals the mystery behind the baseless hatred of Israel, the Jewish people, and those who identify with them, the nation itself, of course. So let me begin. Verse 1, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. The opening phrase, Then I saw, tells us this is a vision. John is seeing something. That's the communique that this is a vision. He's not seeing things literally as they are on our planet, but he is seeing things through symbols to teach us about our present reality and that which is coming. So John sees something. He sees a vision. It says, Then I saw... An angel coming down from heaven holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. Now, now think about this for a moment, right? In this vision, a holy one comes from heaven and he's holding a key to the abyss. And the abyss, of course, is, is a reference to the realm of the dead. In the realm of the dead, there's a number of, of, of places, locations, and, and contexts that are described in what's called the realm of the dead. One of those places is the abyss. It's a holding place, a confinement, uh, uh, if you will. And the key, of course, to the abyss is going to be symbolic. Not that there's a literal key that an angel uses to open some... I mean, think about that. This place, the realm of the dead, is a spiritual uh, uh, place. You know, you don't have, literal keys don't work in spiritual contexts. They do in the natural realm. Okay? This is the heavenlies. This is the realm of the dead. And the angel has a key. That's symbolic. It's meant to communicate that the angel has authority to bind and loose, has the power to confine someone in this place. And the great chain, of course, a literal chain. How can a literal chain bind any spiritual being? It's not a literal chain. Again, it's just communicating that this angel has this ability to actually limit someone, restrain someone. It's, it's a limitation of a person's power and authority. They are bound, so to speak, so that they can no longer exercise the power and authority they once had. And I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. When we think of the serpent in the garden, you know, I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, all I could think of is a huge python, you know, 
just oversized python, the mother of all pythons, with this tongue coming in and out, slithering up to Eve and talking to her. <laughs> like she's going to respond, right? No, she would shriek and scream and run away like most women we know, right? But then again, this language is symbolic. It's not meant to be taken literal. There's not a literal dragon. There's not a literal serpent. These are all symbols of the evil one, right? It says he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. John decodes the meaning of the symbol for us. This is one of the places where John just comes out and says, this is what the symbol refers to. Satan himself, the consummate evil one. It says, and he bound him for a thousand years. He bound him. Why? He had the authority and power to do that. He had a chain and a key to the abyss. He sent from heaven to capture, confine, and to put in confinement Satan. What's this referring to? Any thoughts come to your mind? Let me go on. And bound him for a thousand years. Bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss, shut it, sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. So someone's coming from heaven and is going to come into the realm of the dead which is underneath the heavens. And in that realm of the dead, where Satan rules and reigns, he's going to enter with the great chain, and he's going to bind him and throw him into the abyss and then lock it and seal it so that Satan is bound and kept in confinement so that he can no longer deceive the nations. Is that coming? Or did that already take place? Did someone already come from heaven, descend into hell, and lord over him, taking his keys, which represent his, his power and authority? Think about that. Now, we're going to develop that a little bit further in a few minutes. But before we do, I want to talk about this thousand-year period. Since we're looking at all these aspects of this vision and beginning to understand they're symbolic, what about the thousand years? Literal, 1,000 years, down to the day, down to the hour, down to the seconds? Or are the 1,000 years, like all the other aspects of the vision, symbolic as well? Think about that for a moment. We call that the millennium, the 1,000 years. I would posit that the millennium is no more literal than the dragon or the serpent the key, or the abyss, or the chain. They're all symbolic. It's a vision. They're symbols meant to communicate something. So what is the thousand years meant to communicate? Glad you asked. Okay. Elsewhere in the book of Revelation, numbers are given, and they are symbolic. We understand that. We know that. It is the book of symbols. It's one of the ways that John communicates. Think about this. 
we have the example of the servants of the Lord in chapter 7 who are protected against this coming catastrophic series of judgments that are going to bring just destruction and death everywhere. God says, before you do this, seal my servants. Put, put, put a seal on their forehead and make sure that those who are sealed are untouched by everything that's coming. So they go and they seal the servants of the Lord. Guess how many servants there are? And these are Jewish servants, by the way. The context are Jewish servants of the Lord. How many, how many are sealed? 144,000 Jewish believers. Do you think that's all there were? Do you think that's the exact number of believers at the time that this transpires? Hardly so. The numbers were far greater than that. It was not meant to communicate literally 144,000, 12,000 from each 12 tribes, 12,000 times 12, 144,000. No, it's symbolic. It's using numerology. It's communicating that the vast number of God's people shall be protected. Everyone from every tribe protected and sealed by God. This is the use of numbers in a symbolic manner. And we have other examples of this throughout the book of Revelation. I don't have time to get into those. But let me give you a few example, examples from the Old Testament, how the Old Testament does the same thing. Think about this, the number 1,000. What does that mean when it's used uh, as a figure of speech? Psalm 50 and verse 10 gives us some insight. God is speaking of God here, and the boast is about God. And it says that God, um, or God makes this boast, it says, because every animal of the forest is already mine. Every animal of the forest is already mine. All the sacrifices that you make and give to me, you really give me nothing. Because I own all the beasts of the field. I know I own all the animals on the planet. They're all mine. And then he makes the statement, the cattle on a thousand hills are mine. How big is your God? How, how many cattle does he own? Because my God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. How many hills are there on the, wor on the world's surface? Millions, millions. So your God only owns the cattle on a thousand? That's not a very big God. That's pretty limited. That's not very many in context of how many cattle there are on all the other hills outside of the thousand. Unless, of course, the word thousand in the Hebrew is being used as a figure of speech to, to communicate all cattle on all hills. It's just meant to communicate something that's vast and innumerable. What God is saying here, like he says in the first part of the verse, which is a Hebraism and it's part of the poetry, how you restate something differently, but it's the same thing. God goes on to say, the cattle on a thousand hills are mine. He could have just as well said, all the cattle on planet earth are mine. That's what's being communicated. Psalm 105, 8 through 10. He has remem remembered his covenant forever. The word which he commanded to a thousand generations the covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac. So his covenant is what? Forever. How long is that? A thousand generations. 
Well, how long is a thousand generations? Not very long at all in relationship to how old the earth is, in relationship to how old the universe is. It's nothing unless the word thousand is a figure of speech to communicate forever, always and forever. Again, this is the language of Hebrew poetry using the term 1,000 or millennium in our English to communicate something that's vast, enormous, innumerable, that which is forever. So I believe that this usage of the term 1,000 years in John, the revelator in his book of Revelation, is a figure of speech. It's meant to convey a very long period of time, an epoch, something that has a beginning and an end, and everything that's between, it's a very vast period of time. That's the millennium, the thousand years. It's symbolic like everything else that we've started with in this vision is symbolic. So here's the big question, right? I might have to just answer it next week because we're almost out of time. But it's the big burning question. When does this millennium, when does the millennium, this epoch of time, which this, the evil one is cast into the abyss and locked up, is kept? How long is that? When did it begin, right? 2,000 years ago, when Jesus appeared for the first time, he said that he also brought along with him the long-awaited kingdom of God. In fact, he claims to be the prophesied king, which in Jewish literature comes at the end, comes during the, the age of Messiah. We know that Satan tries to kill him by filling the heart of Herod the king who then sets out and makes an edict to kill all the children in Bethlehem. And I think it was, well, I forget how, what the radius was, but every child two years old and younger, Satan's goal was to kill Messiah. That's been his intent all along, to kill the Messiah and thus overthrow the kingdom of God. The Romans later collaborated collaborate with the Jewish leadership in securing the death of Jesus on the cross. Judas, one of his Jewish followers, basically turns him in to the Jewish leaders of the day who were conspiring to kill him or to have him killed by the Romans. And together with the Romans, Jesus dies on the cross. And it's in that death that Satan and his fallen angels finally are able to throw their hands up and rejoice, realizing that they have killed the Mashiach, the, key, the one who would become king of kings and lord of lords, the one who would spill their end, the end of their kingdom and who they are. And they thought that in his death, they had secured their victory forever. But what happens in his death is he shows up in their realm. He descends into their realm, the realm of the dead. And Jesus confronts Satan, strips him of his power and authority by taking away his keys 
from this realm, from his kingdom. Again, note the symbol of keys. You can read more about that. I don't have time to jump into that right now. But God then humiliates Satan and his conquered angels. Colossians 2.14 states this, when he had disarmed God, when God had disarmed the rulers and authorities, when God 2,000 years ago in the death of Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities, those supernatural forces of evil operating against us, he made a public example of them, exhibiting them as captives in his triumphal procession, having triumphed over them through the cross. In the ancient world, when you conquered a people group, you took their king and their royals and their military leaders and you stripped them naked and you paraded them in the streets like dogs and everyone rejoiced in the victory secured over their oppressors. And Jesus on the cross descends, his soul descends into Hades, into the realm of death. What a surprise that was, right? They thought they finally had him. And yet he has all of his power, all of his authority, all of heaven standing behind him. And then he strips Satan of his power and authority, right? He humiliates his fallen angels. And then he parades them in hell. He parades them in the realm of death in front of everyone else that's already there and under his domain. Oh, it's the first DVD I'm checking out when I get there. I want to see that. I want to see what that was like, right? This is the glory of Jesus. It's the glory of Jesus. It's from this point that Satan was limited in terms of power and authority. He was confined to a particular location where he still is. He can no longer deceive the nations. He had the ability to deceive entire nations, entire cultures under his power and delusion and to hold him in that. And then in the resurrection of Jesus, everything changed. From the first time in human history, We see nations coming to faith all around the globe. The gospel went forth. Rome fell. All these different nations starts popping up. Nations of light. Nations that believe in Jesus. You can see the rise of Christianity, the kingdom of God, all throughout the world. It had never been seen before. The kingdom of God, the movement of heaven on earth, had never seen this before. Had never, had never broken out, I should say, like this before. It was the first time ever. And it grew, spread around the world. And then something dramatically took place. And everything began to change. In this last century, we saw a rapid decline of Christianity everywhere. It finally came to the United States. Probably the strongest, most glorious nation in terms of Judeo-Christian influence that the world has ever seen. By the end of the 80s, all of that was gone. Christianity had declined to a, a certain point to where American historians 
said we're now living in a post-Christian America. There's no more growth. The church is actually losing members. It's on a decline. And that grew worse and worse and worse. And over the last decade, evil has exploded everywhere. You know, I wrote on my Facebook one time, I feel like I'm living in a sci-fi movie. I feel like it's bizarro world. It's like, it's like the whole culture is mentally ill. The nation, it's like you, you go anywhere and talk to anyone. It's like, oh my gosh, I feel like I'm in a mental institution talking to all these crazies. You know, what happened to the nation, right? Shocking. But I think there's a answer for that. Let me read this again. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and the great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss, shut it, sealed it over him, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. It's my view, my opinion. I'm not prophesying and I'm not predicting. It is my view, though, my opinion, that the millennium started in the death and resurrection of Jesus. The kingdom of God has been growing like a mustard seed, inaugurated, moving towards its consummation. We've seen the rise of Christianity everywhere, but we know at the close of the millennium, everything goes dark. Satan's released, and all of a sudden, he can deceive entire nations again. And for the first time in history, we're seeing entire nations slipping back into darkness. Am I wrong? Entire nations slipping back into darkness and evil growing at a rate that we have never seen. Not not in our lifetime. Not Not in our history. I think he's been released. And the gathering storm is upon us. How much time do we have? I don't know. This, this could be delayed. It could go on for a long, long time. How, how long is this short time in, in, the, in the context of an epoch, right? If an epoch's been a couple thousand years, how much is a short time? It could go on for quite some time. Now, I am out of time. And it really grieves me because I can't get to the part that gives us hope. So I have to leave you in a funk of despair and discouragement. But I'll pick this up next week. I'll give you the short and skinny. God breaks through. He champions the cause of his people. He rescues, he delivers, and the ultimate and final overthrow of Satan, his kingdom, his lords, is forever and permanent. The finish is a glorious finish. The finish is a great redemption. We have great hope in this. So, hold on till next week. In the meantime, pray for Israel. In the meantime, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. In the meantime, make sure you're praying for Jewish people all around you. And also, pray for yourselves and your families. We're in desperate times. Darkness is all around. Temptation's at an all-time high. The stakes are very, very high. But in Messiah, we shall overcome. In Messiah, we shall be preserved. We'll make it through the fire. He is with us, right? So I want to encourage you, love those around you. Be healers. 
Share the good news of who Jesus is and that in him is redemption. In him is the forgiveness of sin. In him is the reconciliation of who we are to our God and our King. Share your faith, love on people, be a healer, and give hope to all those around you. Because in the end, in the end, everything's going to be okay. Amen? Stand with me. Shabbat Shalom.